Hi, I'm Colin Sapp, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we've got another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by guitar professor Colin Sapp. A Berkeley alum himself, Professor Sapp has over 150 recording credits, and he's played with all kinds of folks, from Kurt Elling to the Backstreet Boys and Allie Brooke. In addition to teaching in the Berkeley Guitar Department, he also runs the YouTube page Inside Out Guitar with Colin Sapp. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Colin Sapp. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. Um, as usual, we are joined by Cheryl Bailey, assistant chair of guitar. Hey, Cheryl. Good morning. Hello, everybody. Good morning. And uh, Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, folks. Yeah, and today our guest is Associate <coughs> Professor of Guitar Colin Sapp. Hey, Colin. Hi. Welcome. It's great Thanks. to see you. Great to see all of you. There's a lot to discuss with teaching and playing and um, and gear and all kinds of things. Um, Colin, we're going to start with our question. We ask everyone, um, are you a coffee drinker? And um, what what do you value? Well... I do have my guitar department mug, Ooh. of course, because I had to represent, right? There you go, Ian. There we go. Mm -hmm. I am not a coffee drinker. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those things that I just never got into, and I, I stopped drinking caffeine in my teenage years. So, no. yeah, I think it, my energy level's already through the roof, so I think caffeine would be <laughs> a bad addition to that that balance so do you hydrate is that what you're drinking right now like water yes i'll do decaf tea um but i am drinking just the the old clear stuff you know that is not um you're not unique in that and this program there are a few others who are like they just go right for the hydration which i think is really great um because I think, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the people who follow you on social media and stuff do know that you really, when you go for food, you really go in it's pretty a true deep. thing. Yeah. 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 I, I, uh, I'm big, big foodie, uh, big wine guy. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I love finding all the, the, the cool spots. Mm -hmm. Is it like, going to the places or is it actually like matching the flavors for you or what what really attracted you to that um <clears throat> well i actually was in the wine industry for a brief moment uh in the early 2000s mm -hmm. um i had graduated from berkeley in 02 and actually i didn't graduate i stopped uh with all, i i had just general education credits mm -hmm. left and so I took all, I finished all my, my, uh, music classes. And then I went out into the world. I was, I had a teaching gig at the Boston Arts Academy and I was, uh, gigging five nights a week on a dinner cruise. 
So I was gainfully employed, but those things kind of dried up and I was getting into wine through just wine tastings and actually some friends that were students from Europe at Berkeley. I was a little bit older at Berkeley. I was 23 when I came in. Um, so, you know, they, they were also a little bit older too. And I never had wine. I'm from Flint, Michigan, you know, like it's not, not a thing that people did there in the, you know, 1990s and early 2000s. Now it's kind of more of a thing, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but point being, like, they turned me on to wine uh, when the music thing wasn't going so well for me. Uh, I took a gig as a, a, a wine salesman, and I got a really good education that way. And a big crossroads moment was when the restaurant Davio's in town was looking for, like, a, a wine manager. And some one of my friends had recommended me for the gig and I was like wow if I do that that is going to change my whole trajectory I'm no longer going to do music I'm going to do wine I want to get good at wine I'm going to need to learn this stuff because it's a deep world and I decided to follow my heart and stick with with guitar and music and it ended up working out right but point being I still love wine. I still love pairing the foods uh, with the wines. The atmosphere is important, but it's not as important as the flavors. If the execution isn't there, then, uh, you know, the atmosphere can't make up for it. You know, it's this is so great listening to you talk about this because um, so we call this coffee talk, you know, for a variety of reasons. Right. Like one being that in the pandemic we really missed hanging out by the coffee maker in the office and hanging out with all of you. And uh, the students missed being able to drop in on that. So we recreated it. But then in doing coffee talk, a lot of the way that people would talk about their coffee bared some kind of relationship totally. for a lot of people to the way they thought about music. And when you're talking about food and wine, it just really strikes me like how deep you went into that, how deep I know that you go into it, the sounds you make. Um, we're going to get you talking about gear and pedals and sounds because the way that you use them isn't just to paint over a, or create a tone electronically that doesn't exist in your hands. You have this way of really seeing those things as part of your instrument and musicianship. And, and I think that's really interesting also that you said that um, – the atmosphere matters less than the flavors because I think that you have found a way to bring your sound to gigs as a sideman, a soloist, the classroom, all kinds of different venues and sound like yourself. So I think it's uh, I think this one really holds, Cheryl. I think Colin really holds up as a across the board. Um, do you think that's true or um, do you find that, Colin? Do you find that like in a lot of the things you care about, you care about some of the same things? You know, it, well, thank you first and foremost. That's, those were actually very, that was very complimentary. Um, that, that meant a lot to me to hear mm -hmm. that from you. Uh, and, it, and it's only been probably within like the last 10 years that that really kind of uh, was, was apparent to me, I think probably some friends pointed it out like, oh, you're really geeky about your senses, you know, about what you hear, about what you taste, about what you smell. And uh, and I, I don't know where that really 
came from. I remember going back to Flint to visit my mom and, you know, she always said that I was a super picky eater as a kid. And now I'm like eating like, you know, charred octopus. And she's like, who are you? And I, I just, I don't know. I, the cuisine wasn't totally on point in Michigan for one thing. Sorry, all my Michigan family and friends. But, uh, you know, like back then it was a lot of just fried stuff. Uh, we didn't have a lot of diversity in our cuisine back then either. You know, we had one Chinese restaurant that came up in the 1990s. And that was it. That was the only game in town. Otherwise, it's just like you eat at home or you eat at family gatherings or you eat fast food. And, you know, like there was good stuff at, at home and there was good stuff at family gatherings, but it's still kind of limited, right? It's limited to what your family cooks. Um, once I got to Boston, I, I, I mean, it's one of the greatest food cities in, in the world, uh, bar none. Really amazing. I started trying all these things just because I was like, what is you know, broccoli Rob, I don't know what that is. And uh, yeah, like it, it kind of, it, it, it appealed to the artistic side, right? And I think we are artists uh, at our core. I think that's what makes us really unique and special. And I think people in all different disciplines are artists too. And I appreciate the chefs and um, the winemakers uh, on the same level as the artists that we see in museums or that we see on stage. It's all this, in my mind, it's all the same uh, craftsmanship uh, and energy, years and years of refining yourself to get to a point where it's, it's, it creates a very special moment for a person. You know, Colin, I think that, um, I feel like I relate to what you're saying, not just with food, but with music that for me, um, I had as broad of a musical experience as I could have in my little town. And then it was when I went to college and met people from all over the world and all over the country that um, that's not just when I started eating different food because they introduced me to food, but it's when I started hearing different sounds. Right. And um, this really beautifully dovetails into the, the next question that we'd love for students to hear about was, you know, what, what about your beginning at Berkeley, do you remember like a moment in your first days and and did that experience hold true musically for you too? Did you come here and and hear a lot of things that were new to you? Yeah, oh man, Berkeley, I mean, it changed my life. It really did, um, especially coming from, uh, you know, Michigan in the 1990s where there, you know, this is kind of at the the front edge of the internet the internet wasn't really cooking at that point it was there but it was not like it is today meaning there was no youtube there were no uh tab websites or anything so informationally you know i, I my i was self-taught and I, I i had a lot of gaps and i i listened to a lot of music uh growing up and i figured a lot of stuff out by ear and I got okay at the guitar on my own, but I could, I hit a wall, especially when um, I, I went to my brother's community college jazz band to basically just play guitar without enrolling. Uh, and I realized, wow, they're putting charts in front of me that have chord symbols that don't make any sense to me. 
Uh, the tempos are fast. Uh, of course, it has pitches on there that I don't know how to read music, all that stuff. I realized that, wow, I'm not a like legit musician. <laughs> and that put me on a, a few years quest to figure out like, okay, what are my holes? How do I, how do I kind of like spackle those? And I hit a wall. I just couldn't teach myself. I taught myself rock. I taught myself blues. I couldn't teach myself jazz. Uh, and because there's, there was a lot of stuff that informationally, I just couldn't get my hands on. And I didn't know about Berkeley until one of my friends said, oh, yeah, I just went out and auditioned for Berkeley. I think I'm going to go there in the fall. I'm like, what's Berkeley? I said, oh, it's like you can play like guitar there, which most universities and colleges back then, like they didn't really have guitar, electric guitar. Like you could study classical guitar or you could study um, like with one teacher at the school. And he told me, no, like, you can study rock, you can study blues, jazz. And I was like, how many teachers are there? Like, I don't know, like 400? I'm like, what? I was like, I got to go there. And as soon as I hit uh, the 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 pavement in at Logan, uh, I was like, this city is amazing. The city won me over immediately, even though it was dreary and rainy in March, you know, a cold uh, <laughs> rainy season here in Boston, but then uh, I just loved it. I just I fell in love with the the town, and then I I did the tour. I did the Berkeley tour, and uh, I saw all the students with the cases uh, on their back, and I was like, "These are my people. This is the scene." And my first week there, I met so many people that uh, even before classes started, they're still friends of mine to this day, and I've made music with them for now what 22 years it's uh transformative to say the least i don't there's not a word that really encapsulates how important berkeley was for me cheryl i'm seeing you smile and laugh and nod a lot along with colin and i'm wondering um what's on your mind as he's telling that first week story well well i mean i came from pittsburgh area which might be in some ways a similar yeah, Pittsburgh's great. Right? Rust Belt, I guess they call it. Um, and um, and that whole thing, we even just talking about food. And I mean, I, I was lucky to be hear a lot of music. But I, I like what you're, what you're expressing about, the, actually, to tie that into the thing about the food and the wine and the coffee, but it, that you went and studied that and you realized there was a whole world, like that openness to... You know, and, and also I know that feeling like coming from a small town feeling and you just want, you're hungry for something. You know, there's a whole, there's a big menu. Yes. <laughs> you want to check it out and you come to the city and, and, but that you have that curiosity and, and, you know, to start even like thinking about you, you were playing guitar and then you got into wine. There were a lot of questions you had to start as a beginner, like not having that fear to be a beginner. To, because you know there's all this stuff it's complex it, you don't understand it to, but to be able to ask those questions so i'm just curious because that is you know so much a part of your journey how you work with students in that way in terms of getting them to be in the space where they can ask questions and how do you explore that yeah um 
I think that is kind of unique about Berkeley too. I've taught at many places, you know, over the past, well, I started teaching when I was technically 12, <laughs> giving lessons to like my friend's older brother. But, you know, I've taught in public schools. I've taught in, in like after school music programs. I've taught at music stores. Um, Berkeley is, has a unique student population. Um, and, you know, you use the word hungry uh, in, in a metaphorical sense. And yeah, they are all really eager to, to learn and they have an open-mindedness to them. Uh, and so I think that's one of the best parts of, of being at Berkeley is I feel like we are all kind of collectively learning together. Like I learned so much from, from watching you, Cheryl, and you, Kim, it's just, uh, and then I hear you playing through the door sometimes, Ian. Uh, you know, I'm always checking people, everybody's checking everybody out and like picking each other's brains when we can in the hallways or, you know, watching each other perform in concerts or clinics. Um, man, Berkeley is, is amazing for that because it is just like this, this, this family of, of people where we can continue to learn from each other. And I, I never got my doctorate like you did, uh, Kim, but I feel like teaching at Berkeley is is kind of like my doctorate program. And it probably, you know, I'll never obviously finish that degree and I'll never get a piece of paper for it. But I feel like that is my my journey right now is to learn as much as I can from everybody at Berkeley. You know, it's that's a really great way of putting it, Colin, because the whole idea of a doctorate that some people aren't thinking about all the time is that you're making a contribution to your field, right? And you're developing something that's unique to you, but that really contributes to what, um, to, to the way that we're all moving forward together. And I think that's it, right? Is that to keep finding ways to make those connections for students, because at our school, I think we have this unique, maybe it's not unique to everywhere, but we value the idea that people are going to find different traditions to bring together in their own way. And, and that's the whole value system of the education as opposed to um, copying and then later finding your way. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and so I think that's um, that that's why it works is because faculty members like you are, are thinking about that every day. Like how do I get better at helping people to absorb all of this information that they need so deeply and then become themselves, like not do yeah. one or the other, right? Right, right. Um, and so Ian, um, usually kind of more towards the end, Ian asks this question every time, but I think it might be the perfect time. Yeah, yeah. So there's this question that we ask everybody um, that's uh, maybe can be your thesis here. <laughs> but um uh, what is something that students should be thinking about that they're not thinking about or a question that they should be asking that they wouldn't think to ask? Jeez. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, basically, I think maybe if I reframe the question, it's like, what, what would you tell somebody um, that that to look out for or to to maybe think about that they, they wouldn't normally think about. And, you know, Kim, you were just talking about uniqueness, you know, and finding your own voice. 
And that is one of the hardest things to do. And you're right, when we're at uh, the crucible, which is Berkeley, and, and I've been through that, that gauntlet, we, we tend to focus on learning uh, and uh, all, all of the rules and, and copying all of the greats so we can build techniques and we can build our understanding. Um, but it, it's really, really important that you figure out what makes you unique. What's your unique perspective as an artist, uh, as a, as a musician. And once you discover that uniqueness, you need to embrace it and develop it because it's not fully formed. You might have an interesting angle, but it's probably still very rough and it's going to take years to develop that. The balance that you need to strike as a student at Berkeley is, of course, you need to fulfill all your requirements. You need to, you know, get all the, the traditional counterpoint and traditional harmony, and then, of course, do all of the ear training and harmony, uh, contemporary harmony classes. Get those down so you know them solidly. Learn transcriptions, learn your favorite artist stuff, but then try to see around that corner, whatever that corner is for you, take a left or take a right and develop something that's unique for yourself and keep honing that skill and that voice. I think that's what the world needs. Uh, we need unique voices. We do not need clones. We don't need people who follow the rules. We need to learn the rules, but then we need to break the rules, right? And I think it's it's tough to do that in four years in, in an undergraduate program. You know what I mean? Uh, it's not a master's program, you know, where you're becoming a master. Although, depending on where you are before you go to Berkeley, you might be taking it to a whole nother level by the time you leave Berkeley. But for me, Personally, uh, I wasn't mastering anything while I was at Berkeley. I was, I was struggling just to, you know, keep up with with all of these concepts that I was learning. And I always say to to students who are struggling that it is that is the 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 reality of Berkeley. It's drinking from the fire hose, which is a common expression around Berkeley, and it's also like you know just a small snippet of your life. Four years is a drop in the bucket. You know, you live 80 years, let's say. Four years is hardly a blip on that timeline. It took me five years to fully process, practice, and master the concepts that I learned when I was a student at Berkeley. So given the time I started at Berkeley, four years plus the five years after trying to just develop that and, and figure it out and turn it into like my own toolkit where I can then create music with that's nine years. And you know, that, that, that's a serious, serious, uh, you know, arc as far as like commitment to, to developing your sound. So just know that, you know, you've got all the time in the world, take as long as you need and develop your sound so you can, you know, contribute something unique to the world.
Colin, when you were out of Berkeley and you were working on these five years and then plus after that, developing your sound and then starting to do different types of gigs. So um, I hope people go out and listen to the um, tracks that we're collecting of yours and, and we're putting them on our playlists and stuff so cool. you can hear them. Um, but just to summarize, you've done band leader things. You've done some pretty high profile sideman stuff that maybe in different styles than is your main. Yeah. Um, you've also played with some very strong personalities like in duo that also might not be quite exactly what you do. And you played like theater shows, those kinds of gigs while you were doing all of those things. And still now you're teaching at a number of different places at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I think a lot of people are afraid when they get out, like, will I find any work? And then the second fear is like the opposite. Like, will I find so much work that I don't have time to develop who I am on the instrument? And so as someone who has done that, and I mean, I think what you're saying too is that, you know, all of us are continuing to develop who we are on the instrument. So it's not like it has a end, but how did you do that? Like, especially at that point when you're coming out and you're trying to like, you feel like, okay, I'm just going to take what comes, but I'm still trying to find out who I am. Like, did you have a practice strategy that allowed you to do that? What did you do? Yeah. Uh, well, I think there, I was very fortunate that I had gigs that allowed me to work on certain facets of my musicianship. And um, I, I would recommend that people find a, uh, a music project that aligns with their personal musical goals. Uh, for me, that group was Choose to Find, and uh, it was one of the people, people that I was referring to in my first week that I met before classes, Todd Marston. Uh, I immediately bonded with him on just personality-wise. He was quirky, goofy, funny, awesome dude, and uh, we, we got on right away. But then we started playing together. He's a piano player, and I was like, this guy has such a, a great sensitivity to play uh, with guitar players, like he 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 he's listening and he's kind of complimenting rather than just playing. I I find it sometimes difficult to play with certain piano players because they're, you know, we kind of have the same role in the band. We can play chords, we can play rhythm, we can play melody, we can cover that whole ground. If we play duo together, uh, you know, we can't both be emptying our pitchers into the the metaphorical uh, water glass, right? We have to take turns. And he could do that just without any communication. He was just doing that. Uh, he he found a, founded a band in 2005 called Choose to Find. And I went to their first gig and they didn't have a guitar player. And I love the music. And I, I went back to my studio and I recorded like, uh, I just wrote a bunch of guitar parts for these songs, recorded them and sent them to Todd and said, check this out. And he's like, okay, that's cool. He ended up uh, liking what I did and making me a member of the band. And then uh, we ended up recording a couple records together over the next several years, toured uh, through the United States and, and did a lot of, um, lot, lot of cool development on our own sounds. Uh, and that project helped me really really deep dive on becoming a better musician because his compositions were challenging, but also get into sound 
developing a sound, a unique sound. Um, so if you can find a project that you can do a deep dive on where everybody's on the same page and you are hashing it out for hours and hours and hours a week together as if it's your full-time job, um, that I think will help to develop you as a musician uh, rather than just sitting in your room and practicing, which is important. But, you know, let's face it, when you can kind of, you can kind of be, it, it, it turns into like an airlock situation where there's no feedback coming in and you, you don't really understand the greater context with what you're doing. You're just becoming a monster player, but maybe not a, uh, you know, a, as deep of a musician as you could be in that sense. Um, so for me, I think, uh, that, that was the, the turning moment when I, when I found that project. And of course I still had to work my, my gigs and my, my, my day jobs and stuff like that, uh, while I was doing that gig. But, you know, this was my, 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 my development, uh, uh, outlet or whatever you want to call it. I think I would really love it if you spend some time talking about sound and p pedals yes. um, because you are our departmental expert in pedals. And so I just want everyone to know that I'm here to learn and I'm going to defer to Cheryl and Ian for the follow-up questions. But um, can you just, I think so many of our students, they're just, they, they're enamored with this idea of having pedals. Um, Colin teaches the effects lab at Berkeley. And so you're kind of sometimes taking people through a tour of different pedals their first time. Yes. But I'd love to know, like, what's your general perspective on this? Are there certain things you think everyone should really know how to use? Um, and what's your kind of philosophy about using gear um, to enhance your tone and your sound? That's an awesome question. And it's, it's probably going to be... A, a crazy long answer, but I'll try to distill it down. Um, I, I think Berkeley is first and foremost, the, the focus is to become a great musician, right? Like to develop every student as a great musician. Uh, if you're in the performance track, right? Obviously there's different majors, but if you're in the performance uh, division, you are there to get good at your instrument. And I think the music world needs great musicians, clearly, uh, but there's a new, relatively new phenomenon, which is, you know, you're, you're sculpting your sound as an electric guitarist. Uh, you know, 50 years ago, maybe 60 years ago, that wasn't as possible, right? It was just starting to happen with amps and pedals emerging on the market that you could actually like people could have different sounds right uh before that it was just everybody tried to find their own way of playing uniquely now it's gone to the point where we can shape our sounds texturally uh to the extreme like there's just so many variables that we can craft our own unique sound uh people I like the Edge from U2 and Eddie Van Halen, and I'm forgetting the guitar, guitar player from Muse. Uh, okay, okay, no help. But uh, but anyways, like all these people are just taking their Vernon Reed from Living Color. All these folks 
just took the the equipment and made it enhance their playing, right? And they're not covering anything up. They're using it as another instrument or an extension of their instrument. So I always tell my students in the effects lab that yes, cultivate your musicianship. Make sure that you can just are, are, just play the living crap out of your instrument, but don't neglect uh, developing your unique uh, signature sound or sounds or ability to get signature sounds uh, with different effects, amps, guitars, etc. Because it will set you apart in the music world. If you have that unique signature, people will uh, definitely ask you to get involved with their musical project. Here's my question, Colin. Signal chain. Yes. Wah before distortion or after? Before or after? Yeah. Um, I mean, conventionally, people put wah first uh, because it, it doesn't... Um, your, your distortion is or any kind of clipping pedal is, is going to uh, maintain its... Uh, sonic profile that way you're basically just shaping your guitar sound and then you're distorting it right but you know uh if you listen to custard pie by led zeppelin i've uh and, and jimmy page used the in hendrix they used their wah first and then their fuzzes after and then their amp after that right uh but on custard pie on physical graffiti uh it sounds to me like the fuzz is first and the wahs afterwards, because it's like this way, 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 really, really filtering that sound extremely. Um, so it depends what you want to get, uh, you know, and that's true, I think, with any combination of effects. Most people would put uh, your filtering effects first and then your distortion uh, and then your modulation and then your ambience. But there's really cool sounds to be had if you mix all of those things up in different directions. Eddie used his phaser and flanger before his amp, right? So that's modulation before distortion. Uh, if you put a reverb pedal into distortion pedal, it gets this really otherworldly, like chaotic sound. I kind of like that sometimes. Would I use that on, uh, you know, like a, a wedding gig or something like that, you know, like, no, probably not, unless, you know, we're like a Radiohead cover band that they hired or something. But, you know, it's, it's you know, the convention is the convention for a reason. It gets you these uh, kind of tried and true sounds. But I think the rule is to experiment. Break those rules uh, is the rule. Yeah, I think that's the big question, right? Because that until you take that time to rip everything apart and put it back together and see what it sounds like, yeah. you know what I mean? That I think that is the study of, of those effects. I mean, obviously you, and you're a master at that and sharing that with students and also just the impedance, you know, the impedance from if you wire one, one way or the other, you it's cleaner. It's, or one thing is pulling all the sick, you know, the sound out of it. Yeah. Um, how did you learn? I mean, did you learn that stuff from listening to recordings and exploring it or just more of discussions and nerding out with it? I mean, how how do you go about how did you, for instance, that example of that Zeppelin tune? Is that something that you said, oh, what is that sound? And then try, try to recreate it? 
I think it, this this is kind of interesting full circle back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, one of my gigs uh, after the wine stuff was being a mastering engineer. I, I went into the studio world because uh, I love I love recording. I just it's just one of my things, and and that's what I really went into. I I, I did a lot of gigs and stuff like that but I was I loved being in studios I loved recording I loved doing records and so uh, I got a gig as a mastering engineer for geez I guess it was about nine years uh, maybe ten years that I was a, a mastering engineer and in mastering you don't make sweeping changes radical changes to the audio because you can destroy someone's uh, record that they've been spending months if not years on and thousands of dollars and you know the mix engineer really has the the sweeping changes and the tracking engineer they they kind of set the sounds what you want to do is you want to polish it up and so the equipment that uh, you use at the mastering stage is very very uh, finely adjustable and all of those sounds uh, you know you just you just turn it maybe a half a db just to kind of carve a little, just you're just shaping it, putting the final uh, wax and buff on the on the car as it's leaving the the paint uh, you know facility. So that to me kind of dialed in my my sensibilities for not only uh, you know just audio stuff, but just life in general. Like wow, you can really like just a slight tweak to this joke and it's funnier. You know, a comedian talks about their process of making something funnier by just just one twist in there and it makes it that that more much more laughable. So, um the way I learned it is just by doing it. And because I was in studios a lot and around a lot of gear, I and I was building my own gear and in studios too uh over time i i could tweak the actual sounds and i could i could hear the differences between you know what what, what my different ideas were you know i could come up with a hypothesis and then uh, i could experiment and figure out if that was actually if my logic was was accurate or if it was faulty and then i would learn from then there and then after that you know it just kind of snowballed you know more i kept uh, acquiring more gear and uh, doing more experiments, doing more recording, and then you know, pretty soon I had like a bunch of recordings and a bunch of gear and a bunch of knowledge from that. So learning by doing uh, was was how I got uh, a little bit better at it. Do you know a lot about like I, this is maybe a diversion? I mean, you're talking about like sort of just through the process and the practice, but how much do you know like about? electronics because like i see that big sea of pedals behind you cheryl said a word impedance which scares the pants off me like you know like i as a luddite flat top player like i know about woods and what mm. woods make what sounds and the bracing patterns in guitars but you'll start talking about like pickups and like resistance and stuff and it starts to really scare me like 
Yeah. So how much do you know about like electronics and like how much would you need? Like if somebody wants to know more about pedals or crafting their sound in the way that you're talking about, like how much of that stuff should they dive into? Oof. Um, well, my pandemic project, when I realized that we were going to be in lockdown for an extended amount of time, an indefinite amount of time, um, I, I wanted to scratch the itch that I had about all of my amplifiers and my pedals. I wanted to know, I, I, I have talked, I, I was lucky to, I think the more you are, you get in, into a scene, into a music scene, the more people you meet, right? So not only musicians, but you, you, um, you meet people who design, uh, equipment and, and build equipment. And I loved having these nerdy conversations, even though everything that they were saying was basically going over my head. It was intriguing to me. And I I would open up, you know, like my my Princeton reverb or or my um my Vibrolux reverb or whatever. And you can just pull those chassis right out. Now you just gotta be careful like not to touch anything because you know, sometimes those capacitors can have a lot of voltage in them and that that could be lethal. Um but you know, I had friends that were, you know told me, just look, don't touch, right? Just you can pull it out, and and we'll I'll I'll go through and, and tell you what is what. Um, but it it, did, it still didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then I ordered some books. I or I built an old man workbench in my basement last year, uh, and I started doing all of of that stuff, uh, reading about it, and you know experimenting first off with pedals because there's low voltage you won't get zapped that way uh and then doing amp uh, maintenance on a couple of my amps that needed some some work and you know i i feel like i have a better understanding now of why things sound the way they sound and in fact i was uh just setting up for i'm gonna shoot a video later today uh about the dallas arbiter fuzz face and what each component does. Now, there's not many components there. There's two potentiometers. There are, uh, looks like, three capacitors, four resistors, and two transistors. That's it. You know, what is that? Like 12 components or not even? So uh, if you swap one of those things out for a different value, uh, how does that impact the sound? And I'm still learning about that. I'm still figuring out you know, especially in more complicated circuits, how one change, you know, affects other things down the the signal chain. And that's why there's such a diverse amount of uh, electronics available to shape our sound now, because you make one difference, uh, one, one selection that is different in a component. And now you've got kind of a unique sound and you can put that out as, as uh, you know, a new pedal. Um, your question is, you know, how how much should you know? Um, I think most people don't really know what's going on under the hood, and you probably don't need to know about what's going on circuit-wise. But it's nice to know. Uh, I feel like if if you really want to understand what the regeneration knob on a, uh, a flanger is, or even on some of these phasers, uh, I've got a few. I've I've got almost thirty phasers now. I'm a phaser freak. I'm a. It's a problem. But, uh, anyways, like, what does that do? And 
when you start looking at the circuitry, you realize, oh, that's a that's a feedback knob that that actually sends it back into the delay line, and therefore it kind of adds this kind of deeper texture to it, uh, more more pronounced flanging effect or, or comb filtering effect to it. So I, you know, it can be helpful rather than just being like, oh, if I turn this knob, it has this sound. If I turn turn it this way, it has this other sound. Uh, that's useful enough, and I think you can get by doing that. But if you really want to understand why it's doing what it's doing, then look at some schematics. Uh, there's some great websites like Electrosmash that breaks down the different uh, classic circuits. And um, another one is like Aeon FX, and uh, there's a few others. Small Bear uh, Electronics has has some breakdowns, some circuit breakdowns, so you can start to see kind of what those different components do. I think we just lost everybody. No, it's incredible because I I think if you're listening to the audio version of this, it would be worth it to pop in and look at all our faces when you're talking about like taking this stuff apart, you know? Yeah, Um, all your eyeballs rolling back in your head. When you said it was a life-threatening learning prospect. Um, But I think I really love the depth, you know, just listening to the depth and the creativity and the curiousness and... You know, it's not just, I think it's really valuable to diffuse that myth that it's not just like you plug into this thing and you put your foot on it and then you have your sound. Like, these are all tools and you have to know how to use your tools. And and um, I think listening to you talk about it just shows like how deep the ocean is, you know, when you start to go right beneath. Um, and so, you know, as an artist, I think we all relate to what you get out of it. So I'm wondering like, Colin, like what's, what do you value about your sound? Um, are you, do you care about texture and color or shape of your notes or, or all of the above? And in what ways, like, can you put your finger on a few things that all of this knowledge and technology kind of leads you to as an artist? Uh, yeah, that's exactly the point, right? Is like, you know, if you don't have um, kind of intent behind what you do, uh, and and you're n- you're not always trying to search out like what makes what you play more expressive, then yeah, it's kind of all for naught. For me personally, uh, music is a form of expression. It is an emotional transfer. It's a transfer of emotions. And we can do that with pitches. We can do that with rhythm. We can do that with dynamics. Um, and we can do it uh, with any kind of expressive elements like vibrato and hammer-ons and pull-offs and slides and vibrato bar dips or whatever, right? We can convey all that stuff. But, uh, of course, sound is much more than than just that in, in our day and age. I mean, you listen to the music that is being produced now with, it's all pretty much computer-based and everything is textural, right? When you listen to like the intro of uh, any pop song, you know, there is like sounds that cannot be created with a an acoustic instrument. It's all being created with uh, electronic sounds and it sounds, it transports us to a different place uh, and at the end of the day, I feel like if 
you can find things that resonate with you emotionally, then it's going to resonate with other people emotionally. And you just have to find what those feelings are within you. Uh, when you play any effect or any instrument, whatever it is, and you start creating on that, that vibration or whatever you want to call that energy that is created within you, uh, run with that and just keep going with that. See if you can maintain that feeling for the entire piece of music. And you'll, you'll come up with something powerful, not just for yourself, which will be incredibly gratifying, but I guarantee that other people will resonate with that too. Cheryl, as we're coming to the end of this um, really cool discussion, um, what what is on your mind for Colin? Yeah, Colin. Well, I mean, it was really great to get into your thoughts about sound and that last part that you're just talking there about emotion, how sound conveys emotion is really deep. But, uh, you know, I think overall what I really uh, – got out of this discussion that's inspiring is just the patience for the process and the curiosity uh, that you need to dive into these things. Um, and uh, so thanks for sharing that with us. And I know students are really going to dig this and be also inspired by that, but just, you know, when you're talking to about that time when you're at Berkeley and you were like, I, I can't get all this stuff done. Like, that's really important to hear that because I, I went through that, I'm sure, at Berkeley and, and all of us do. So I know a lot of students are going to identify with that and be like, oh, okay, I'm not crazy. Yeah. And it just be patient and dig in deep, you know, take good notes and it, it, it'll be there for you. So thanks for sharing that. I know people are going to really dig that. Cool. What about you, Ian? Yeah, I I like how you kind of came full circle there toward the end where, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, you're talking about trying to find a unique voice earlier and then through talking about pedals and through talking about this stuff that, you know, you're more of an expert on than, you know, certainly I am for sure. And it's very alien to me. Then you, you use that to come back around to say, you know, really explore those things that you really think are cool because it means that you're onto something, right? And to develop it and to go deep with it and know it really well, practice it. So I really dug that. And I think that that's a really neat way of taking like a very specific specialty that you have and also connecting it to sort of these bigger universal things about music. It's yeah. true for anybody, no matter what kind of style they play or what kind yeah. of guitar they use, you know? Right. And you don't need a lot of gear, you know, and here it's coming from someone who is, has this whole backdrop of, of just like oodles of gear. And, and, you know, I just don't think that you need a whole, I think a couple cool pieces is all you need, you know, like you need a good instrument. You need something that you can be creatively comfortable on, right? Mm -hmm. That, that when you play, like it just, translates right from your head and your heart into your hands right it, you don't need a lot of stuff and uh you know i've i've really really felt strongly about this over the past year since we've you know had to to go through this this awful pandemic uh that i i feel like again it, it's kind it, it's kind of 
hypocritical of me to say this because I understand what we're seeing and what we're talking about here in my my world where I have just so much equipment it looks like I I am like a rabid consumer of electronic gear and music gear and uh to some extent I am but I'm not a collector I'm not someone who just keeps stuff in a vault I've I've chosen the pieces over my you know 30 year career based off of a specific sound profile that I do not have in my arsenal and it fills that uh, gap and I need that sound because of you know certain projects or you know uh, being able to, to just fulfill a, a sonic ideal in my mind and if, if I were to to give uh, any advice to people who are like trying to figure out how to uh, you know, what pieces of gear to buy to, to develop their sound. I'd say, you know, experiment a lot uh, and don't, don't be a, 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 like a, a consumer, but be a creator. Think of, think of it from a creator mindset rather than a consumer mindset, right? Like when a new piece of gear hits the market, don't just be like, oh, well, take my money, but figure out like, you know, how, how do I, how do, how does this enhance my creativity? How does this enhance my music? And will it or will it not help me do that? Um, and that gives you at least a little bit more justification. But furthermore, like all of this stuff that we see here uh, in, in my room is absolutely replicable. You can build it yourself. And for a, a fraction of the cost, you know, uh, a new boutique hand-wired amp can run like $2,500 or something. Well, yeah, it's going to take a little bit of equipment and a little bit of study and, uh, you know, some experimentation. So that upfront cost might cost you a little bit, but you could build that same amp. I mean, components-wise, it's about maybe 700 bucks, you know, and this this creator mindset i think is going to not to sound all like you know like oh you know we're living in tough times and we need to save the world but you know like this consumer culture is kind of killing the planet isn't it i mean kind of so be more of of a creator put stuff out in the world for people to enjoy and build things that you need for yourself uh, somebody told me years ago that the world needs more fixers, and that really stuck with me. And I always wanted to be a fixer. I didn't want to like just throw stuff out when it when it broke. I wanted to be able to fix it and continue using it forever. And I feel like that can actually be really beneficial for any artist. Um, so it kind of ties in with like, you know, you are a creator musically, but you can be also a creator sonically with the gear that you make and it's not that tough if I can do it and I'm doing this at kind of a a later stage in my life and learning it on my own you can certainly do it too there's there are huge communities out there that will support you thank you so much Colin and I think that's the perfect um, note to end on because I think you've shown so much energy and passion and I think that one thing that comes to mind when you talk is how important drive is and how important, you know, you have the tenacity to work so hard 
And um, sometimes there's a myth that if you have energy and you have creative passion, things just come together. And I think what you've really shown today in our hour together is that that stuff is great and it only really comes to fruition through drive and depth and just the tenacity that you've had throughout your musical life to, to find your artistic voice and, and see every opportunity in your gig life and your teaching life as an application of that. So I can't think of a more perfect way to end. Um, and hope we get to have another coffee sometime soon. Yes. Um, thank you for having me. This has been, yeah, thank you for being here. So, um, I'm just going to sign off by saying thank you to Professor Colin Sapp. Um, thank you, Ian Steed, and thank you, Cheryl Bailey. And we'll be uh, with you on the next Coffee Talk.